Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized badass disability rights activist, Judy Human. This episode, Judy chats with journalist and podcaster Lauren Ober. They discuss Lauren's new podcast called The Loudest Girl in the World. It's a narrative limited series podcast about Lauren's journey to discovering she's autistic at the age of 42. Enjoy this episode and please check out the description to find The Loudest Girl in the World and more podcasts by Lauren Ober. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet this episode's guest. Lauren Ober, we are going to have a fantastic discussion today. I am so very happy. Um, I'm going to start out by asking you a question. A man living in our neighborhood when I was growing up in Brooklyn, we called him Pop Ober. His last name was Ober. Do you by any chance know if you had a relative in Brooklyn? Wow, that was not the question I was expecting, like right off the bat there. No, um, my family's name um, when my great-grandfather came over from Switzerland was Oberer, and they just lopped off the extra ER, and then they moved straight to Pittsburgh. So he was the nicest man. Well, I would adopt him if he was a nice guy. Every year, he would go to the Kentucky Derby, and he would bring me a glass. Really? Absolutely. Is it in this apartment somewhere? Fortunately, in all of my moves, it got lost. Oh. So I hope that whoever's got my Kentucky Derby glasses from Pop Ober, I hope you're using them well. <laughs> but everybody, I had to start like this, because if you listen to Lauren Ober's The Loudest Girl in the World, or any of the other productions that she has been responsible for creating and hosting and producing, I have been riveted by listening to these programs. And you're so open and joyous and thoughtful that I had to start the program differently. So I know that everybody is going to like uh, the discussion that we're going to have today. And I hope that you're going to learn a lot also, because I know that I have been and I will continue in learning from you about your history. So why did you decide you wanted to get into journalism? Oh my gosh. I feel like I should have a better answer for this. <laughs> so I went to college at American University here in DC, and I had no idea what I wanted to be or do or anything like that. And um, a friend of mine who worked at this school newspaper said, hey, do you want to do a, a bi-monthly column? Because they had like a um, a boy doing a column and then they wanted a girl, female doing, you know, the, the other week. And I didn't know anything about writing. Um, but I said yes, because it was kind of framed as like a humor column, which, you know, I mean, what do I know about comedy anyway? Um, anyway, I started doing it and I really enjoyed, I mean, this is such a trashy answer, but like I enjoyed the attention of writing something and then people reading it. I really got a kick out of it. And, you know, I, I graduated from school. I worked at a boarding school for a couple of years, didn't really know what I was going to do. And then I ended up going to journalism school at Syracuse because I thought I'm going to write magazine stories. I'm going to, you know, be a, a great narrative newspaper reporter and write really great features. And I did that for a while. And, and then I found my way to audio because I just I'm much more suited for audio for obvious reasons. Well, tell, tell us what. Because I just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. <laughs> Well, the other thing 
from listening to your program, they're highly scripted. Mm. Is that they, right? They are. Yeah. Yes. They're very scripted. I mean, there's a lot of off the cuff yeah. stuff, but it is beat by beat narration. So it seems like it's a real good combination. It's really fun. Well, okay. I mean, I'm sure you've written a ton. Um, you know, you have experience writing. I have this feeling that I hate writing, but I love having written. I like the experience of a product at the end, but the actual process is murderous. I hate it. It's so uncomfortable. I complain the day that I, like, I know I have to start and I'm just like flopping around in my bed. Like, I can't do it. I don't want to do it over and over and over again. And then finally, I'm just like, oh, you have to because you have a deadline. So, I mean, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't write if I didn't get paid and if I wasn't under deadline pressure. Like, I have a mortgage, so I have to do it. <laughs> you live in Washington, D.C., I right? do. Yeah. And you're from Pittsburgh. I'm from Pittsburgh, yes. Yes, like born Washington. and raised. Yeah, yeah. You know, Washington's such a unique city to live in. Obviously, you know that. But everyone is here... Well, most people are here to do some version of good, whatever good means to them, I think. And it's such a different place. I mean, nowhere in America is like this federal enclave that we're we're living. And I feel like it gets such a bad rap, but it's actually a great city. I love traveling. I love going to other places. And I come back here and I'm like, this is a pretty livable place. I mean, minus the rents, you know, but in general, I think it is a manageable city, at least for me. So how did your career evolve? So, you know, I got a job at a rinky-dink newspaper after graduate school. Here in D.C.? No, no, no. I went to graduate school at Syracuse, right. and then I got a job in upstate New York at, like, a very small newspaper. And I worked there for, you know, a year and a half or something. And then I got a job at a slightly less rinky-dink newspaper in, uh, in Burlington, Vermont, I, I lived in Vermont and I worked at two different papers for probably eight years. But this is at the time when the newspaper industry was falling apart, right? And people were getting laid off and all my colleagues were getting laid off. And then everyone was saying, we need to pivot to video and all of this stuff. And then I had a situation at the paper that I was working at that made me not want to stay there anymore. So I, I left that paper, not knowing what I was going to do, but I had always had an interest in audio. I was a huge public radio listener. I loved This American Life. I loved Radio Lab. I loved, you know, Planet Money, like all of these shows that were sort of early. They became early podcasts, but they were radio shows first. So I listened to them and I thought, could I do this? Like, I don't know. Can I? And then I heard about this program called the Transom Story Workshop, which was like an audio journalism, audio storytelling training program up on Cape Cod. And I learned for two months on Cape Cod how to make audio stories. And it was like the first time that I ever had any kind of like period where I, I didn't have to work, like I had saved up enough money where I didn't need a job during that time. I just spent all this time learning how to do a thing. And then I moved, I ended up moving out of Vermont, moved to DC. I got a job at a university here just writing and I figured I'll do audio on the side. And I was like, it won't take me long to get a job because like, who doesn't want a newly minted grad? <laughs> like, oh, hey, like I'm just gonna make audio stories for you. I've made two of them. So you should hire me full time. Um, I ended up freelancing for a while and then um, I got a job at the public radio station in DC and then I just, you know, kind of just went from there. But I ended up freelancing. I hustled, hustled my little fanny off 
and and just did work for everybody did every kind of audio job I could I could manage I'd like to talk a little bit more about this because I think it's really valuable for some of our listeners Mm -hmm. to understand what one frequently has to do in moving through the world of work, especially with so many changes happening right now. So what would you say some of the major lessons are that you've learned over the course of a reasonable number of years? (laughs) Two decades. Uh Two decades in journalism. You know, I always did the trash jobs. Like I always, I mean, I've, I've, I've had a job since I was 15 and I've done so many garbage jobs and, and I think that all of them have some value. You know, I work for terrible people. I work for great people. I did terrible jobs. I did cool jobs, but I think in audio specifically, you know, I just was focused that I I want to be good at this. And so my takeaway was just like, I'll do any little recording job for hire, you know, I'll do something for 80 bucks, you know, I'll do like, I'll do stuff for free if I figured it would help me, you know, make a connection with somebody. And, you know, over the course of 10 years, basically, I went from hustling and pitching projects and being constantly told no to now having, you know, hosted four radio shows and podcasts. What are they? So my first show was called The Big Listen, which was a production of WAMU and NPR. And then I hosted a show called Spectacular Failures from American Public Media. And I just had two shows come out. One is called Fine Gorilla Person, which is a narrative show about Coco, the signing gorilla. I'm putting signing in quotes because, um, you know, it was purported that Coco knew ASL. Coco did not. Coco had a Coco sign language. Um, and that is from Audible. How did you learn that that was true? Because I'm a reporter, mm-hmm. Judy. I'm a reporter. Um, no, because it was obvious. And also because there are plenty of deaf people who and ASL natives who would say, no, this is not. The gorilla is gesturing. The gorilla is using some form of um, gestural communication. But not ASL. No. No. And, 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 and Coco's trainer was barely using ASL. I mean, she was not a native speaker either. So that was a really fun and interesting project. Um, and then my most recent one is called The Loudest Girl in the World. And that's from Pushkin Industries. And that's, yeah, that's the scariest one. And that just started. Just came out. September 12th, yeah. 2022. This is true. Tuesday. It's true. You released two. I did. And they're great. Oh, thank you. And we'll get to that in a minute. Cool. So, what's your family like? Oh, she's <laughs> going right in there. She's going right in. What's your family like? Is this therapy? I literally just came from therapy, Judy. I didn't know I was going to have therapy part two. You know, my family is, I mean, I've, I've a, I have a brother, so we're a small family. My parents are divorced. Mom's a librarian. Dad's a lawyer. Both my parents grew up in like working class Pittsburgh backgrounds, like construction worker family on one side, steel worker family on the other. So very like very Pittsburgh people. And my brother lives in New York now. And yeah, yeah. yeah. well, he moved out of Brooklyn to upstate, you know, because he wanted to buy a house. He wanted to buy a house with his wife and his kids. So 
So, so yeah, I mean, I went to public school for up until high school and then I went to a private school, which was like, I was much better suited for and it was in the city and, but I had grown up in the, in the Pittsburgh suburbs and it was so much better. Like I love, I love cities. I love going to school in the city. I love like having a city as your campus. And, you know, my parents were only too happy to have me gone for the day. You know, my parents were, my my parents were very like, you know, it was the independent kind of like, you want to go out for the day and ride your bike? Just be back by dinner. You know, I've had a very loose childhood. But then my my mom put me in like every sport possible. She was like, I think you have too much energy. (laughs) Like, let's spin some of that out, you know. My dad is, like, a loud, boisterous, like, big laugher, and my mom is, like, a quiet, introverted lady. So some of who you are obviously came through being raised in a family where there was all these different activities going on. Yeah, I mean, I think I was really lucky in that, you know, they keyed into the fact that I needed to be active and that I also was, I had athletic ability. And now I, f- I feel really grateful because I, you know, I played a sport in college. Which? I played lacrosse in college. But because I was put into every kind of sport, and I could conceivably do all of those now if I wanted to, which I don't because my body is <laughs> broken down from <laughs> years of sports. But, you know, I think it was really fundamental just like learning teamwork. And I mean, that is the most important thing for me in, in my working life is is understanding sort of team dynamics and i think of myself very much as being on a team even though i'm a i come in as a podcast host like we're all a team you know why did you want to create the loudest girl in the world you're assuming i wanted to (laughs) well maybe you didn't want to what drove you i felt compelled i felt compelled so it's a it's a narrative memoir podcast about my experience being diagnosed with autism when I was, you know, 42, I'm now 44. And when I was looking around for resources, you know, when I was thinking about getting a diagnosis, when I was trying to learn more about it, there was just nothing that I found that really spoke to my experience. Not that I need something to speak to my exact experience. Like there isn't, that doesn't exist. But I'm too old for the sort of YouTube, TikTok, native, you know, there there's endless videos on there of people talking about their experience on the autism spectrum. And then, you know, there were some books, some memoirs, you know, like Temple Grandin is t- typically speaking to people who are not autistic, to, to parents of kids who are autistic. Like it was just, there was nothing that was for me, I felt like. And I felt like I really wanted to have something that I could relate to. And so I just made it myself, but I did really feel compelled, you know, like it wasn't fun. It was terrible. Like don't do work about yourself. It's the worst. (laughs) That's very interesting actually, because um, why, why was it so important for you to get an identity of autism? You mean like a, like a diagnosis or like a have, like have it affirmed? Yeah. I mean, it's, a diagnosis, but it feels to me also like it was something that you knew was in you. There was something going on that was different. Yeah. And in choosing to do a program which is focusing on 
autism, it's really going beyond just being diagnosed. Like you're digging into it much more deeply. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, look, I've been doing therapy for a bajillion years, right? And one of the things that kept coming up was this feeling that I had that I was sort of always bad and always wrong and always doing something like not, I was not good, right? And a lot of that was because like too loud, you're too much, your beha- my behavior was always problematized, right? Um, as opposed to like, well, yeah, she's really chatty, but that's a good thing because of this. It was always like, Lauren has a failure to maintain self-control, you know? And I didn't respond to that. You mean like in school? Yeah. I was always in trouble with the teachers and my parents were kind of like, it's the teacher's problem. Like they need to deal with it. But they didn't consider that the punishment that I was, that was being meted out was all that bad because they both went to Catholic school, you know, where the nuns were beating the hell out of everybody, right? And so, you know, Lauren getting tucked in the back of the classroom was not as bad as, say, like getting beaten with a Bible. Okay, but like, it's very traumatic to be othered, you know, by your teacher, by your classmates. But it was also a time when, you know, teacher knows best, right? And my parents just figured look, this is how they do it. This is how they do things. And and if Lauren is disrupting the class, then, and if the teacher, you know, moves her desk, then that's probably warranted. I mean, I don't think they would advocate for that now. But yeah, I think that all of that as a child really stuck with me and sort of led to me feeling how I feel about myself as an adult. And, you know, just through the process of therapy started sort of unraveling some of these things. And my question to myself was like, why do I have this talking compulsion? Why do I have communication difficulties? Why doesn't anything feel frictionless, right? And my partner, Hannah, has a 19-year-old son who is autistic and I was spending a lot of time with him. And so, you know, I was kind of picking up some stuff from him and understanding more about the condition and and all of that. And, and, you know, you just sort of, I feel like it descended on me like this like mist, right? But then I needed that affirmed because like it wasn't something I felt comfortable sort of self-diagnosing because I would be always second guessing myself and I you know I put faith in professionals to some degree and so I wanted to engage a professional which is very hard I mean you know like dealing anything with the healthcare system is nearly impossible but I had a hard time figuring out well who do you even go to and I'm thinking I have all these resources if I can't figure it out like how can other people who don't have as many resources, like it was really hard. I mean, I knew, I knew people who were autistic. I knew people who had autistic kids. I knew people who were researchers, like all this stuff. And I was like, where do I go? Like, how do I, how do I find somebody who's competent and who doesn't cost like $12 billion, you know, because insurance surely does not cover diagnostic evaluations. So you were in elementary school in the eighties, right? I was. And so Section 504 and the IDEA were both operative, although relatively new. Mm-hmm. Did anyone ever, do you know? No. I already know the no question. No one ever said anything to your parents? No. No, but also, you have to understand, like, autism was not talked about the way that it is now. I mean, it was, it was very much, like, if you were diagnosed, like, Still, at that time, like, you were in a special school, you were in special ed, and people with a subtle presentation, particularly girls and women, people who are not men, like, you were never thought of in that way. And, you know, 
autism is this forever moving target. And there isn't just one fixed definition and there are many different presentations. And, you know, I think that people have evolved their understanding of autism, but certainly, I mean, when I went to school and when I was in elementary school, I don't remember any kids with disabilities except for one, Eugene, who was blind and he brought his absolutely enormous braille machine into school. And that was the only kid I ever met ever that I knew of with a disability. And, you know, I mean, the only other kids, like if you had to go out of the class for some kind of thing, it was like, it was a dyslexic kid or a kid with some reading issue or something. But beyond that, it was like, everybody is sitting in rows. Everybody's doing the same thing. There were no aids in classrooms at all, you know? And um, it's amazing how much schools have evolved. Yeah, I think it's a very important point because when looking at the disability rights movement overall, you know, obviously many people have no conception that the label autism, ADHD, ADD, and others are really relatively new in the world of disability. Mm -hmm. And in you know real life, when I was working on the IDEA in Senator Williams' office. The reason there's a cap in the law which says can't identify, I believe it's more than 12% children who have disabilities, it was because learning disabilities at that time were beginning to be identified. Mm, mm. And identification of children and adults with autism is relatively new also. Mm -hmm. So have you met and worked with the other people like yourself i'm being identified later in life it wasn't until i started doing this show to be honest um i mean look when you're when you're a journalist you know the great thing that you get to do is call up interesting people you know with the excuse of like i'm interviewing you for a thing but really i'm like i just want to be your friend um so so we had this episode you know called lauren makes an autistic friend um, which is basically like me calling up interesting autistic people. You know, we talked to Chelsea Wolf, who is a, an Olympic BMX athlete, who is a trans woman who is um, who is autistic. And, you know, I like in talking to her, I'm like, oh, my God, we have so many similar experiences. And then I called up Catherine May, who is a bestselling author in the UK and wrote this gorgeous book called Wintering and another book about her experience, sort of understanding her own autism called The Electricity of Every Living Thing. And, and when she, I talked to her, I was like, oh, my God, like we're the same. And the woman who did our music is a New Zealand artist called Lady Hawk, and she's autistic. And when I was talking to her, it was the same thing. I was like, oh, my God, we have them. You know, and so there's this shared like I didn't know any of these people existed. You know, I mean, truly the only autistic person who I, I really knew prior to this was my partner's 19-year-old son. And like, I like him, but he's a teenager and I'm not trying to hang out with him, you know? <laughs> so. so as you were meeting people who were doing various forms of professional work, mm -hmm. you also, it seems, were beginning to connect mm. with the fact that they did have autism. Mm. So what is this connection felt like? How has it? assisted you yeah i mean i'm still really in the early stages you know i wish all of those people lived here in dc because then we would just be best friends and we'd hang out all the time but i think just knowing oh right like there are other people like this and we do have a similar experience so and there is somebody that you can chat with occasionally i mean you know when the show was coming out i was texting with 
with Catherine May about how, oh my gosh, I'm like, I'm so nervous about this because she had written a book that was really formative in my understanding of, of my own brain, I think. And sort of being able to say to her, like, what was it like for you releasing that book? Like all these people are like, you know, trying to project their experience onto you or did people tell you that you weren't autistic or all this stuff like so she was able to answer a lot of my questions and give us some of the answers <laughs> um you know there are people who who told her and and who probably will tell me like oh you're not autistic like because you don't do x y and z right or people who you know think that because you have a similar pathology or something that you're you're automatic like that your kin, right, in some ways. So there's like an over-familiarity, I think. But also she was like, people were extremely kind and generous. And I mean, my show's only been out for one day, but that has been my experience. Um, and so it's just so nice to have my experience sort of mirrored back to me because I think that I've largely moved through the world, you know, thinking like I'm a weirdo. But I think, I mean, everyone's got a sack of rocks, right? It just how you choose to carry it and, and how heavy your sack of rocks is. But to be sure, we all have one. And so you're not actually alone. It's just you haven't met those people. So if you would have pitched this podcast as the first one that you wanted to do, so the other three that you've done mm. hadn't happened, mm. do you think you would have had interest in making it move forward? Or in part, do you think your credibility and your the number of followers that you have on your other programs Hmm. enable people to have trust in you in a way that they possibly took a gamble. Yeah, I mean, I can't obviously answer that because I don't know, but I will say that, you know, in any kind of creative project, the more the more that you work at it, the better your final product becomes. I mean, I'm always learning. And every project I work with different people and every team is different. And I learn so much from the people who I work with. I mean, I love the teams that I've been able to assemble and work with for the most part. So, you know, I definitely would not have been able to do this. If I got a diagnosis like this, like 10 years ago, when I first started in audio, I would not have been able to do this for sure. I mean, my writing has improved. My ability to do the craft of audio has improved. And I, I think that there's something about being middle-aged where you're like, I don't care. <laughs> you know, like, whatever. Like, I have a job. I have a life. Like, you know, I have a house. I have a dog. Um, if you don't like the show, oh, well. Like, what am I going to do about it? I mean, but then, of course, my competitive brain is like, I want everybody to listen and love it. Was it hard when you pitched this program? Did it pitch to you or did you pitch it? The woman who greenlit it at Pushkin had also greenlit the Coco the Gorilla project at another company, but then she moved jobs and we were just talking about, she said, hey, do you have any ideas you want to talk to me about? And I was like, well, I kind of have this thing that was very loose, very amorphous. And they greenlit it without it going through a development process, which I was surprised about. Like I thought I would have to make, you know, like one episode or something. And they were like, yeah, let's just go straight to production. And it was great, but I had been treating the project even before somebody said yes, like I was already doing it because when I got diagnosed, the only way that I would like, like I forced myself to learn about it is by like interviewing a bunch of people, but I didn't have a show. Like I was just interviewing people. And I, I mean, luckily I was a journalist. So, you know, people said yes, but I had like all of this, these mountains of tape, you know, from people who I didn't end up using for a show because I didn't even have a show yet. 
But because I had already been doing all this work and because I had, you know, 10 years of experience making shows and my previous show was a real big success. So they said, yeah, like, but it's still a gamble because in this business, narrative shows do not make money. They're money pits. You know, I mean, it costs a lot to make a narrative show, but they said yes. And I'm so happy that they did because I feel really pleased. I mean, even, even with one day, days worth of reaction, I've already heard from multiple people who were later diagnosed, particularly women. I've heard from parents whose girls recently got diagnosed and they were really excited that there was something that reflected their experience, not identically. I mean, everyone's experience working through the system is different. I mean, we talked to, there's this person named Asiatu in the show, and they come from a therapy background. Like, I think both their parents are therapists or something, but they're queer and they wanted like a queer, autism competent, trans therapist. Like they wanted somebody who understood their experience, right? I mean, it's like a unicorn you know, and their experience, like working their way through the healthcare system, just trying to find somebody who could understand their experience, it's like impossible, you know, but it was like, it was very cool because then through the show, like I got to connect with them and like bounce our experiences off of each other, which, you know, there were definitely some, there was definitely some overlap, you know? So finally getting the diagnosis, mm. how has it made your life different? And second part, how would your life, do you think, have been different if you were diagnosed in elementary school? Mm. Well, I, I think now it's like, I, th I think of the diagnosis as like monumental and minuscule. This is how I sort of see it in my mind, like a really big, like big mountain and like a tiny little stack of dirt. You know, it's like, I'm the same person, but I have different language. I have a different framework and I can think about myself differently and I can think about myself differently in relation to other people and I can look at all of my previous experiences that have been difficult or caused pain I can look at it through this lens where I don't have to think that I'm like a dirt bag you know what I mean like I don't why did you think of yourself as a dirt bag? why you know because like because I had conflict with people a lot like I had social issues I get I have difficult times at parties. Like I'm doing a lot of work to appear just like everyone else. And it's exhausting and it's stressful. And, you know, like I'm, I'm always in trouble. Like I get in trouble a lot. I get in trouble for my mouth. I get in trouble in real ways and in small ways. I mean, the other day I said to my girlfriend, like, I said, um, did you, did you get your hair dyed recently? She was like, what? And I was like, well, because I was, I thought, and I was, what I was trying to explain was, it looks like when they dyed your hair two weeks ago, they didn't do a good job because now I can see all of your, and, and that is, no one wants to hear that, right? Like I was like, I backed myself into what I was trying to say and in a protective sort of loving way is like, boy, your stylist didn't do their job right. The dye is already wearing off. I can see, you know, but instead she's like, what is wrong with you? Like you are making me feel bad and self-conscious about my hair. But in my mind, I'm like, but I'm helping you. Like I'm, you know, and so that's, it's that type of stuff. And so normally like, or so pre-diagnosis, I would just, I would obsess over that. Like if I said something, I put my foot in it, I would obsess over it. And now I can sort of give myself a little bit of slack, you know, and have a little bit of grace around it. You know, I, I think to your, to the second part of your question, 
you know, it's hard to think like, well, would your, you know, how would my life have been different if I had been diagnosed? Is that what you're asking? Yes, it is. But maybe I'll modify it a little bit because I agree with you. It's hard to go back and say how life would have been. Mm. And I guess it leads into another question. Are you looking at doing programs Mm. for the loudest girl in the world, which will look at issues like how autistic kids are treated in school Mm -hmm. and whether it's valuable for them to be identified and also the issue I think you've really been talking a little bit indirectly but directly about the value of knowing other people like yourself Mm. so I think my question is are you going to be working in future episodes where you'll be focusing on kind of looking back on what your life was like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what's being done that maybe is or isn't changing? You know, this is a limited run series. So we'll do nine episodes and then we have a bunch of bonus episodes, which are just interviews with people that we didn't have time to, or we didn't put the full interview in the episode. You know, this isn't so much an advocacy podcast or project as much as like, it's a personal project that I hope sort of indirectly serves as like one more piece of work in a a larger canon of work by autistic people where people are able to share their own experience. And through that, you know, I think there's, there's learning and there's change. I mean, I feel like my role is to be able to sort of individually engage with people. It's like when, like back in the day, you know, people be like, I don't know anyone who's gay, you know, and then just knowing, like having a gay friend, like changes people's minds and their thought about like, well, it's really hard to be like, I'm against like marriage equality when I have one friend who's like, it's right. And I think it's kind of like that for me. I mean, I, I honestly, I kind of did this for myself because I felt like I had to. I think quite frankly, that's, very clear in the program. Yeah. For me, it's a learning opportunity. Yeah. It's one person's story. Right. On something that was important. Right. It's only one person's experience. However, I think that it's valuable in that, like, autism is, like, mysterious. It's it's a mystery to people. And the way that it's been presented in popular media and culture is all wrong for the most part. You know, I mean, people still have Rain Man as a reference and that movie came out ages ago. That's not an appropriate reference for 2022. It wasn't an appropriate reference for, you know, whenever that movie came out. And so I think that the more that people, like I have a platform, right? I know that I have a platform. I have the ability to write up a pitch, send it to the right people. I have an agent. I have somebody smoothing the way for me. I have access to that and it would be a real shame if I didn't use that in some way to make some project that spoke to an experience that I know I'm not the only person having, right? And, you know, people have said, well, like, who did you make this for, you know? And when I was first making it, I was like, it's for everybody, right? Like there's a humanity, there's a there are universal themes in it, I feel like, but it's really hard to sell that to, to like a, a production company. Like it's for everyone, right? But it is, it's like, it, it, it feels to me important to make my experience in some way universal. It's very specific to me, but it is also some universal 
feeling there are plenty of amazing activists out there doing fantastic work. And like, I don't necessarily need to join that realm, but this is the thing that I'm able to do. I'm able to produce a creative work that I hope then informs people. Like you can't say, I don't know anything about autism now, if you've listened to the show. What I like about the program is you're on a journey mm. and you've been on this journey a long time. Yeah. And at some point you just decided you had to figure out and open the door and mm -hmm. go in. Mm -hmm. And in this journey, I'm sure that you're meeting many other people like yourself mm -hmm. who questioned who they were because you're not a bad person. But oh, other people, thanks. I don't know, you will not say, maybe that's not true. <laughs> maybe you are a bad person. But that's right. That's right. That's right. What do you know? But I think on a serious note, what I the program that you're doing on autism could be done by people who have a learning disability or any one of a number of other disabilities. So we're about to end. And I, I do want to get back to the question, yeah. which is, do you see this opening as one that might also allow you to venture into more stories on the whole disability rights movement? Because just like people look at Rain Man mm -hmm. as the world of autistic people, it's true for really any category of disabled people. Right. And that's one of the threads, I think, that's really important. So one of the reasons I really like what you're doing is because it's exposing another strand. Mm -hmm. So have you thought about that at all? You know, I am still like in the thick of this. I mean, the show just came out and, you know, I think what I'm interested in is like people need to be able to tell their own stories and be empowered to be able to tell their own stories. I think that one thing that I do know how to do is package that in a way that people like, because look, I mean, a podcast is entertainment, right? We listen to podcasts for many reasons, but like, first and foremost, it has to entertain people in some way. And so I would like to, in the future, figure out a way to provide an outlet for other people to tell like narrative long form stories that engage people and aren't just, you know, telling you what to think, but are, they're allowing people a window into into your experience that they didn't otherwise have. It's really hard to do. I mean, it's a really hard it's really hard to sort of take sort of a magnifying glass on your own life. It's very uncomfortable. You're not a reliable, you, you know, like you need people telling you like, "Meh, is that is that true?" Like you need, you know, family, friends, editors, producers, you need all these people, you know, to to tell you it's really hard otherwise. But if that is something that I am able to provide for somebody, I would love to be able to do that sometime in the future. But now, like, I mean, my brain is still oozing out of my ears, you know, for making this show. So I'm not thinking about anything in the future quite yet. Well, I really would like to thank you for coming to our home office. Love it. And um, I really suggest that people not only listen to The Ladders Girl in the World, but Google other shows that you've done, because I love your style. Oh, thank you so it's much. It's a and, very powerful style. And thank you so much for having me in your home here and chatting with you. I mean, it's like I was nervous because you're, you know, legendary and, you know, but really you're just like a goof. Just like the rest of us. So I goof better when I'm with someone who's a goof. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for inviting me. I really appreciate it. And now we have to end by taking a Japanese 
Papi, Rod from Friends in Japan, and Crunch. Mm. It's even better when it's from Japan. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guest or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee.